0: Welcome to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle. And in this session, we're going to continue where where we left off in the last session. This is part two of Responding to Foolish Statements. And in part one, we covered the first five, and they were, The Bible does not say how God created. There are no absolutes. Evolution is a fact. No one has the whole truth. And that's true for you, but not for me. In this session, we're going to cover the next five, and these are, why are Christians against a woman's right to choose, meaning abortion? Why are Christians so intolerant of other viewpoints? We shouldn't teach creation because it's too divisive. And besides, God could have used evolution. Life must be on other planets. It's arrogant to believe we're the only life in this universe. And finally, the Bible's not real history. It's just a book of fiction and fairy tales. So let's get started with the first one here. Why are Christians against a woman's right to choose, meaning abortion? What is so foolish and unwise about this statement? Well, that statement, when it's being made, it gives power to one group of people to kill another group of people. That's what that statement is really saying. It's saying, we want the power to be able to kill another group of people, meaning babies. Now, the answer to this statement really has four parts. Number one, as Christians, we're not against a woman's right to choose her own future. Secondly, we are against a woman's choosing to destroy another human being's future, meaning the unborn baby. Three, we are for women to be informed of the whole truth about abortion. And four, we are for the rights of the living baby in the mother's womb. That's how we need to respond to that statement. Now, in this statement again, why are Christians against a woman's right to choose? They are actually making a claim to have a certain right. In other words, we need to be able to find or ask them to define what is a right And where do rights come from? Now, what is a right? A right is the just power to make a moral claim on someone. Now, the key word here is just. When we talk about just, though, we're actually introducing what is called moral absolutes. Because the definition of just is based on or behaving according to what is morally right or fair. Now, if we were to leave out the word just in that statement, in other words, a right we defined as the just power to make a moral claim over someone, if we leave the word just out, then it just becomes power. In other words, moral relativism. Whoever in power makes the rules or gives the rights. So, conclusion on this statement. The statement is a claim to have power over another individual, whether they live or die. The statement ignores another person's rights, the baby. It takes their right away from them to live. And for the statement, also, it ignores scientific facts. It is a genetic and scientific fact that human life begins at conception. It is also a statement of moral relativism, In other words, whoever is in power makes the rules. Therefore, if someone was to come into power and they said abortion is wrong and we're not going to allow that anymore, then everyone would have to abide by that law. So, are Christians against a woman's right to choose? No, we are not. But we are against a woman's right to choose to kill another human being. So, next session. Next part. Why are Christians so intolerant of other viewpoints? Let's start by defining the term tolerance because it is a very misunderstood word. Tolerance is the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular, the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. That's a good definition of tolerance. For example, we don't like pain, but we tolerate pain. Mothers tolerate pain at childbirth. We sometimes sometimes tolerate foods we don't like. We tolerate other people's habits we may not like. We tolerate temporary discomfort at times. And we can even tolerate people who do not agree with us. So that's based on the definition of tolerance. See, many are unaware what tolerance really means. It actually has a close relationship with truth. True tolerance means putting up with error. That's what it really means. We don't tolerate what we enjoy or endorse. We tolerate what we don't approve of or we don't believe in or what we believe could be error. That's tolerance. Therefore, tolerance does not embrace or accept as legitimate all perspectives. Rather, tolerance is a negative attitude, a dislike or approval of a belief or action. In other words, if disagreement did not exist, then tolerance would not be needed. For example, we can respect other religions even though we believe they are mistaken or their certain values and beliefs are wrong, we can tolerate other religions, and that's something we do in America. Now, to summarize what we said so far on tolerance, tolerance grants people the right to dissent or not agree with. That's what tolerance is. Doesn't mean we have to endorse it, we just tolerate it. And also, 100% tolerance, of all views is true, ends up making many contradictions. In other words, we start living with contradictions. For example, we may tolerate all religions, but not all religions are the same. So to tolerate all religions means we may not agree or believe them to be true, but we allow others to believe them even though they contradict what I believe. In other words, I don't have to accept them, but I tolerate them. Some people believe God used evolution even though Evolution and the Bible are not the same. They contradict each other, but we accept them. Not all people do, but we tolerate that view. Now, if we accept all views, then do we also have to accept that 3 plus 2 can equal both 5 and 8? See, there's true tolerance right there. Three plus two can equal anything we want it to, if that's what you want to believe. In other words, we end up believing in contradictions when we have 100% tolerance. In other words, there would be no absolute truth anymore. No absolute right or wrong in 100% tolerance. Now, one more point on tolerance. Those who actually advocate tolerance in everything lack any standard of truth. In other words... They advocate relativism, moral relativism. And without any standard of truth, there can be also no such thing as neutrality. And power becomes the norm. In other words, whoever is in power makes the rules. So now back to the statement or the challenge. Why are Christians so intolerant of other viewpoints? Response. You, likewise, are not being tolerant of my view. Tolerance means we respect others' views, even if we don't agree with it. In other words, why are you being intolerant of my alleged intolerance? So it turns out it is the relativist who actually t- becomes the most intolerant of all. They are intolerant of anyone who does not believe like them. Well, let's take the next statement now. We shouldn't teach creation because it's too divisive. And besides, God could have used evolution. Now, this also is another foolish statement. Let me start with Scripture here. The first part of this answer is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where we read, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What this means, folks, is we are to teach all of Scripture. In other words, those who are unwilling to teach Scripture are being disobedient to God's Word. And that needs to be brought out in these churches that will not teach parts of Scripture. Second, let's take a look at Jesus and controversy. Jesus never compromised. He confronted false doctrines. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, Jesus overturned tables, and it reads, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus didn't compromise there, and he was not tolerant of what they were doing either. Then in Matthew chapter 15 verse 7, Jesus offends the Pharisees by calling them hypocrites. Then in Matthew chapter 15 verses 12 through 14 we read, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Jesus didn't compromise. He was not tolerant of this. And I'd say that's pretty controversial when you would start calling somebody hypocrites or overturning tables. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The Bible makes it very clear, folks. The Bible does not condone compromising His standards, God's standards. Not compromising requires our unwavering submission to God and to Him only, regardless of what the world teaches or what the popular view is. As believers, we must, as it states in Colossians 2, verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. We must be able to stand up for God's Word regardless of what the world teaches. And finally, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, we read, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Do we accept God's Word as true or not? We are also commanded... In 1 Peter 3.15, as it states, to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. In other words, we are told to be ready to give a defense. Not sit there and say, oh, I don't want to offend you. uh, I'm just going to remain neutral here. I don't know what to believe. We are told to defend God's Word. That is not a suggestion. It is a command to defend God's Word. We are not called to be tolerant of everything. We are told to stand and defend God's Word. Now, the first part of 1 Peter 3.15 reads, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, we are being told to be set apart from the world and not compromise with the world. So, some final points on this statement that we shouldn't teach creation because it's too divisive. I'm going to go through nine points here about this topic. Is Christianity divisive? Yes, it is. It's always been divisive. This should come as no surprise. The teaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, as it states in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. In other words, all of God's Word is very controversial. Does that mean... We shouldn't teach all of God's Word. See, if you're going to be consistent, you don't want to teach creation because it's controversial and too divisive, then we shouldn't teach the cross either. And my statement there is, why do you even bring the Bible to church then if you're not going to teach it? Number two, the sincere seeker of truth should not be afraid to consider teaching the truth. Three, the world has always laughed And sneered at followers of Jesus, just as they mocked and despised him, and sent him to die on a cross. That's a pretty profound thing that Jesus did, did not compromise. Because he didn't compromise, he went to the cross. How much are you willing to give? How much are you willing to teach about God's Word, even though it might offend some people or it might be controversial? Remember, it's God's Word, not yours. Number four. The church is clearly divided on this issue of creation and evolution. Did that mean we should hush it up in the church and try to smooth it over? Don't the members of your church deserve the right to know the truth about God's Word? Number five, I don't read in any biology textbook that God used evolution. It's always evolution without God, thoroughly naturalistic processes. Why is it that evolution are more committed? to their faith than many of our pastors are. Number six, too many of our youth are confused on the issue of creation evolution because we have too many pastors that are afraid to teach the truth or simply don't believe it. Number seven, if God used evolution, why doesn't the Bible tell us anything about that in Genesis? Number eight, the gospel, who God is, his character, and the second coming of Jesus Christ all depend on what happened in the first three chapters of Genesis. In other words, the first three chapters of Genesis is the reason the rest of the Bible had to take place. So we better teach the first three chapters if we want our people to understand God's Word. And then finally, number nine, some might say they would rather remain neutral on the issue of creation and evolution. However, Neutrality really means surrender in this case. You blend in with the world. It is like being lukewarm with God's word. So, the conclusion on this statement should church leaders teach creation? The Bible demands we do. Now, number nine, statement number nine life must be on other planets. It's arrogant to believe we are the only life in the universe. Now, what is it about UFOs that drives so many people to believe they exist when such beliefs contradict all known laws of physics, chemistry, and biology? Well, the common denominator tends to be evolutionism, a belief in evolution. Mankind is looking for meaning in something, anything other than their only hope, Jesus Christ. The idea is that there is something bigger than ourselves driving the search for life in outer space. The question we need to ask people who believe in extraterrestrial life is this. I call this a great power question. Can you show me any observational evidence, notice the word observational evidence, for life anywhere else in the universe that does not require me to believe by faith. And the answer is they cannot do this. A belief in life anywhere else in the universe is a belief by faith because there's no observational evidence to support us. See, it is a well-known fact that there's no observational evidence for how life began on this planet. That is even taught in our schools that we don't know how life began, but then they go about ignoring that and teach evolutionism. In addition, scientists are unable to create even a single biological protein. So if we don't have any clue how it could form here, and the science shows it really cannot, then why are we believing life could be elsewhere in the universe? Also, the distances between galaxies are far too vast to travel. Even going speeds close to the speed of light, we couldn't make it. That only shows up in science fiction movies. Then... Why did God make the universe so big if He didn't put life out there? Well, did you know the Bible gives an answer to this question? I don't have to make anything up. The Bible gives an answer. And we'll start with Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. And the Bible states, How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. The answer to that question is for signs and wonders. Then we read in Psalm 19:1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. It is for His glory. The answer also comes in Psalm 18, verse 3 and 4, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Why did He make us so big? To humble us, man. And finally, the answer comes in Romans 1:19 and 20, because what would be known of God is and for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as the eternal power God had, so that they are without excuse. Why did He make it so big? So there would be no excuse for anybody not believing in the Creator God. Now, let's go to the final statement. Number 10. The Bible is not real history. It's just a book of fiction and fairy tales. Not long ago, I was in a secular university, and I was giving a talk. And during the talk, a young lady stood up and challenged me. She said, I can't believe the Bible. It's just a book of fiction, fairy tales. So I asked her this question. You're in an academic environment here. Have you studied the Bible like you have your other subjects? And she had to say no. So I had to tell her, then you're not being very academic by making that statement. It is fiction and fairy tales because you have not studied the Bible and its claims. And that was the last I heard of her challenging me. So now, many who do challenge the Bible, truthfulness, have never really studied the Bible or its claims. Yet, they will believe evolution even though they haven't studied evolution that much. They haven't studied things such as how the dating methods really work or that life could not have formed by naturalistic processes, but yet they believe that even though they're very unstudied. Have biology teachers ever asked themselves this question or these questions about evolution? That's a challenge I want to give to biology teachers. Have you ever asked yourself these three questions about evolution? How do you know it's true? Has it ever been observed, and are you making any assumptions? In other words, have you ever taken a real, critical thinking approach to what you believe about evolution? And I dare say most have not. Their appeal for believing in evolution is nothing more than authority, Have you ever studied that life can't start by naturalistic process? Have you ever, have you known that no one's ever observed one creature changing to another? Have you ever seen how those dating methods actually work or don't work? You see, we can take a critical look at evolution, but we can also take a critical examination of the Bible. And let's conclude with that. The Bible is a very amazing book. It is not fiction and is not a book of fairy tales. It is real history. The Bible is the inspired word of God, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. It contains 66 books written by over 44 authors. Has a span of over 1600 years in the writing, written in three languages. It was written by kings, prophets, shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, physicians. It is indeed an amazing book. The Bible agrees with reality. It agrees with the origin of the universe. Something cannot make itself, so somebody had to make it. It agrees with the origin of life. We have a law of science that says life must come from life. It agrees with the fossil record. It agrees with history and archaeology. It agrees with the value and sanctity of human life. It agrees with the reason for suffering and death. It agrees with the design in all life. It is an amazing book. The Bible also answers ultimate questions. Where did we come from? Why is there death and suffering? What is the purpose of life? What happens after we die? It is an amazing book. The Bible tells us who God is and what He is like. He is the creator of all things. He is a personal God. We can go to Him directly. He is the living God, not some inanimate object. He is a God of love. He is a God of patience. He is a God who cares for us. He is a God of judgment. He is a God of mercy. The Bible is indeed an amazing book. Let's make sure we have leaders in our churches and teachers in our schools who will teach the Bible the way God gave it to us and stop trying to reinvent it. Thank you and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website creationtraining.org Again, that's creationtraining.org Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15 but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.